Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 20th, 2022. We've been doing a lot of shows recently about American politics, and there's a dark apocalyptic tone, I think, to a lot of the conversation and new books out. Uh, we did a show last week with the St. Louis-based author, Sarah Kenzia, on uh, the politics of America, particularly the Trumpian politics. Um, she has a new book out, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Uh, there's a lot of uh, violence and the potential of violence bubbling up. We also did a, uh, a show a couple of weeks ago with the journalist Andy Kroll about the conspiracy theories associated with the murder of Seth Rich. Many of these are imaginary. Uh, they, there is very little evidence that in any way they're real. I mean, Rich was murdered, but there doesn't seem to be much uh, political uh, implications of that. On the other hand, we also did a show with Luke Mogelson, the um, New Yorker, New York Times writer, on January 6th. Um, and we talked about the threat to the American Republic, the title of his new book, The Storm is Here, an American Crucible, certainly suggests the bitter end of American politics, that we're at a a concluding moment. Uh, and the book that we're going to discuss today is appropriately entitled The Bitter End. It's a book about the 2020 presidential campaign. And according to its subtitle, The Challenge to American Democracy, it's written by three distinguished American uh, political scientists, John Sides, Chris uh, Tazanovich, and Lynn Vavek, and I'm thrilled that John uh, Sides, who teaches at Vanderbilt University, uh, is joining us today. Uh, John, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. It's part of a series of books that you put out through Princeton Press uh, on American elections. Um, how bitter is the end uh, to American politics? How dark, how final days is the tone of this book and the election? I think that the, from our standpoint, you know, the bitter end obviously is is a reference in part to January 6th and to the events that day, to the insurrection. Yeah, you begin the book with reference to January 6th. Yeah, I, to me, I mean, you know, people of course would oftentimes point out to us that there are lots of trends and uh, facets driving the election and that aftermath that haven't ended, certainly the you know, prevailing belief that, you know, Biden was not legitimately elected is an example of that among Trump and, and his allies and many Republicans in the electorate. Um, but for us, you know, the bitter end really refers to a year, uh, the whole election year itself ending with a pandemic, with a, a tragic murder uh, of George Floyd and the protests that ensued. Um, and some, to some extent for, I think for us, the there are a lot of bitter aspects of that election that were not just the usual what happens when two candidates fight a very tough contested campaign. 
um, the bitter end and the challenge to American democracy, I think first and foremost is this sense that people are not going to abide by the outcome of fair elections and are going to react to that with um, lies and conspiracy theories, of course, as you pointed out, but also react with, with violence. And to us, the ongoing threat, you know, the, the thing that persists beyond the bitter end of this election is the, the risk that that, not necessarily the violence of the Capitol itself, but the, the risk that these kinds of, the unwillingness of the losing candidate to abide by the outcome of a fair election will become kind of a recurring feature of our politics. And I do think that that certainly risks violence, even if violence doesn't always occur. Is this the same, uh, John, on both sides? Is it a feature both of the left and the right in American politics? I've had so many conversations on the show about whether we should be more scared from the point of view of democracy, of sure. Trumpism or leftism. We had sure. um, Pete Weiner and John Rausch on the show, both conservatives or centrists arguing that the right is scarier than the left. Are you finding this same challenge to American democracy, both from left and right? Yeah. So I would say that from, from our standpoint, the, the risks right now are primarily from um, certain political leaders on the right, um, both politicians as well as news media personalities and the like. I mean, they're the suppliers of the misinformation that, that I think has led so many voters to have um, this belief that Biden wasn't you know, elected or to be willing to um, follow along with relatively convoluted conspiracy theories about what exactly happened in that election. Um, there is, I think, a my, our evidence shows in the book that you know, the losing side in an election you know, obviously tends to feel less confident in the outcome. I mean, there's a fairly typical kind of loser's bias or loser's skepticism. But what happened in 2020, you know, the Republican reaction to that went so far beyond the typical pattern that I don't think we can portray this as something that, um, that is inevitably uh, equivalent on both sides of the political spectrum right now. I think partisanship always can make people susceptible to believe things that are conducive to their party. But what we don't, so you could, you could imagine a world in which Democrats have similar kinds of beliefs, but right now, if you focus on the supply side of the equation, it seems like most of the work that's promoting these ideas is coming from um, parts of the Republican Party. Not all members of the Republican Party, to be sure, um, but certainly from some very prominent leaders who are willing either to say these things explicitly or to appease those who do. And I think that raises the risk in the, in the future. I mean, there was a piece just the other day where the um, a number of Republican state uh, candidates in 2022 were asked, would you abide by the results of an election? And many of them just either said no or, or just refused to answer entirely. I mean, this used to be, I think, the kind of thing you could trust politicians to, just to say it, even if they didn't always mean it, because that was just what one said in a, in a democracy. You know, you, you lose an election and you live to fight another day. But now, you know, this reticence even to validate uh, an election outcome in which you lose or could lose, I think is pretty troubling. Uh, John, you also, as I said, you're the co-author with the other two, uh, well, actually with Michael Tesla and Lynn Varvek of a, a book about the 2016 election uh, identity crisis. Didn't the left, though, spread the same rumors about the Russians and Trump and sure. cheating? 
I mean, it might not have been quite as paranoid or extensive. There wasn't a January 6th uh, yeah. out of 2016, but there are similar similar ways of thinking. And does it come, does it stem from the kind of moral absolutism you find on both sides who simply can't imagine that they could ever lose unless the other side was actually cheating? Sure. Yeah, I would say, that, I mean, I would say a couple of things just to think about the, the comparison to 2016. Um, certainly some of the rhetoric about the influence of Russia and the election um, went far beyond, I think, any evidence that it actually did have that effect on the election. And in fact, in the book, we, we deal with this at some length and, and ultimately argue that um, these accounts of Russian influence were, you know, in, in some news media reporting um, were just, you know, vastly exaggerated its, its importance in the grand scheme. Um, so I think there's always, those ideas are easy to sort of find, seize upon. But to me, the, the question is then, well, then what? What do you do with them? Well, so one thing Clinton didn't do that Trump did was, you know, sort of refuse to concede the election. Like she conceded the election. Um, she didn't encourage her followers to, you know, uh, act violently. Um, and, you know, to, to, to some extent, I, I don't think that it became a prevailing part of the Democratic Party in the four years of the Trump administration to return time and time again to the fact of the Russian interference and to use that to claim that Trump was never legitimately elected the president of the United States. So you see the difference, I think. So I, to me, what I, again, I, I return to is that, like, we know from human psychology that we all can at times fall prey to believing um, things that are probably not true or definitely not true simply because they serve our political goals or our political values. But what, what concerns me more is what political leaders do and say and how far they're willing to go. And that to me is what is so indicative about 2020 and why we titled the book the way that we did was because it, everything went so much further. Trump and his allies were willing to go so much further than the typical losing candidate did. I mean, he made so many choices in 2020 that Clinton never made in 2016, nor Romney in 2012, um, just to use the most two most recent examples. What about the role of, of, of violence and the embrace in some ways of violence? They did a show a few months ago with the New Yorker writer Jen Senor wrote a wonderful piece for the New Yorker on, on Bannon, um, talking about him as America's Rasputin. Mm -hmm. uh, you begin um, the second chapter of your book with a quote from Bannon, um, who you describe as the White House chief strategist in 2017. Um, and this is what Bannon said. If, if you think you're going to give your country back without a fight, you are sadly mistaken. Um, is there an embrace now? amongst men like Bannon, and I mean men like Bannon, I'm not sure how many men there are really like Bannon, uh, of violence as almost a, a legitimate political strategy, almost a, a, a Leninism on the right? Yeah, I, I mean, where I think some of this stems from, um, I see some of it in Trump's campaign in 2016, um, you know, even before Bannon joined the campaign. 
um, and sort of took up the mantle. I mean, Trump has always, I think, spoken uh, very casually um, about violence in the context of politics. Um, he sometimes sort of waves it off. Um, he, he actively encouraged it at certain points in his campaign. You know, he would tell people that if, you know, there was a protester or somebody at one of his rallies that, you know, he tried to get some of his supporters to, you know, take care of that person, attack that person, and he would pay their legal bills was the thing he always uh, talked about. And in fact, our book on the 2016 election opens with exactly that episode um, where somebody, a protester was let out of the, uh, a, a Trump event in North Carolina and sucker punched on his way out. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so I, I to me, I think um, one of the challenging things about our, our political moment is actually really trying to understand the, the breadth and scope of not just violence, like actual violent acts, but violent threats. Um, one of the, the things that we talk about in the, the concluding chapter of The Bitter End is the extent to which um, these kinds of violent threats were uh, targeted election officials in a variety of states, um, both at the local and state levels. Um, and, you know, this isn't always, I think, widely reported or, or, or even counted, right? Like, we don't actually know how, how much of this goes on, but so many officials reported, you know, people who are, you never knew their names, they're not public, you know, they're not household names, they're not widely known public figures, they just, are, they're kind of almost bureaucrats who just do the work of running American elections in, at the county and state level. All of a sudden, you know, having vile messages left on their phones. Right, we, we've done shows on that. Actually, Mark Bowden, yeah. who's a war, war writer, and Matt Teague has a, have a yeah. book about the steel. Um, and, and interestingly enough, they argue in that book that the system held up just, but it did hold up. It did. I, I mean, in, in, for the thanks in part to the courageousness of these people, but I, I do think that one of the challenges that democracy faces is when you know, people are willing to embrace and encourage these tactics. It doesn't mean they're always acted on, right? Because people don't always, in, you know, engage in the collective work that the violence actually requires of, you know, meeting and gathering and then carrying out the act itself. Sometimes these things are, are more unplanned and spontaneous. Um, but nevertheless, right, January 6th, probably. yeah, sure. I, I feel I feel like it, the, the, to me, the risk is that it's it it drives it drives good people away from politics. It it raises the risk that. You know your ability to do the, the the work that the machinery of democracy entails is is based on your willingness to endure threats against you and your family and your children on a regular ongoing basis. And that again, like I think that part of why we have democracy is not to have war um, and to have politics by other you know war by other means. So to me, I think that one of the things that it's incumbent upon politicians to do is to to talk about politics in ways that tries to de-escalate. Yeah, it's interesting, John, that you talk about politics as war by other means, because the book seems to be suggesting that that's what actually is happening to American politics. America's always been an incredibly violent country, always riven by massive economic differences, cultural differences, racial differences. But and I'm not accusing you of this, but it seems like the discipline of polit American political science over the last 20, 50 years has been an attempt to turn American democracy into some sort of consensual operation, which it never was and never will be and would never have reflected America anyway. So what's wrong 
with politics as war by other means, which is essentially the way in which these two parties now are operating. You call it a calcified politics, but it's yeah. actually an honest politics, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really great point. I mean, so I think part of what, um, like I teach this to you know undergraduate students, there's no world in which we should imagine politics that doesn't involve conflict, um, that doesn't involve contrasting visions of what's right and wrong, contrasting visions of what's good policy and, and contrasting visions of what's like makes the country good and what are what's right and moral and all those kinds of things. Um, I don't wish for a politics. I don't think of a, I don't think a world of, of, of complete consensus is even really a particularly political world at all. So, you know, we, we, we acknowledge the, the value of having good, you know, honest disagreement, but we ask for people to do that in a way that's, you know, not explicitly threatening people with harm and injury and death and all those kinds of things. So I, for me, like, you know, I think this, I don't think this is not a central theme of the book clearly, because we're telling a lot of different stories about the election itself. Um, but I think what I would imagine is that you could imagine a world in which the parties offer distinctive visions and you can imagine a world in which voters are fairly loyal to one party and not inclined to change their minds. That's what we would describe as calcification. Um, but, you know, does that have to then immediately and inexorably carry over into a world in which we carry out our politics by violent means, as opposed to, again, carrying out our politics by means of, of competitive elections? I, I think we can probably hope for a world in which the nation's history of violence, which is all too real, is, is not a roadmap, you know, for the future of our politics, even if we continue to disagree about um, the major questions of the day. John, in the book, you talk about, and I'm quoting you again, tectonic shifts in partisan attitudes. And you've got lots of ch charts in the book about the profound differences now Americans feel between the parties and presumably between peoples of different opinions and their regard or lack of regard for uh, uh, other parties. Um, can this be good for democracy? Can it actually strengthen democracy if the institutions are resilient and the political parties are resilient. I, I don't know why people are so pessimistic on this. Because all, as I yeah. said, and maybe it's the same question I just asked, but it simply reflects a reality. I mean, the people of San Francisco and the people of Nashville, they lead, they lead entirely different lives. They may carry the same passports, but that's yeah. basically all they have in common. Um, so I think a, a couple different thoughts um, on this score. I don't think there's anything wrong with, again, having you know, two or more political parties offering different platforms, different ideas, um, and having voters choose between clear choices. Um, you know, there was a time actually in the 1950s when the American Political Science Association kind of called to have for more of that and, and wanted the political parties to actually offer clearer choices than they did at that time. And I guess, you know, that particular task force of political scientists got what they wished for and probably far, far much more than they thought they would get. Um, and, and I guess in, in my mind, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But the risks that, we, that it, I think it raises which we have to be very clear-eyed about. It doesn't mean the risks are inevi inevitably translated into something terrible, but the risks in that context are, 
I know your willingness to abide by actions or decisions by political leaders that are contrary to the letter and spirit of democracy, but ultimately offer you an opportunity for partisan advantage. So some of the work, we, end up, we cite some of this work at the end of the book, where scholars who have looked at the relationship between having a more polarized politics or you know, more calcified politics and the quality of democracy have raised the concern that in that context, people are going to be maybe more um, so averse to having the other side win and implement a set of ideas that you find completely anathema that you'll end up agreeing to weaken democracy in certain respects. Again, not inevitable um, and something that certainly has, I think, become more of a problem because of the actions of Trump and his allies in particular. Um, but to me, that's the potential downside. It's not just a politics in which we, again, fight about the issues. There's a winner, there's a looter, loser. Two or four years later, we do it again. It's a politics in which there's continual pressure on democratic norms and, and that seeks to erode them in certain ways and therefore create a system in which um, certain features of democracy have been changed and, and they've been done you know, for explicit political gain. The parties are divided or America is divided relatively equally between the two parties. You note that in the book, and that's one of the, the most important features in what you call a calcified politics. What happens if half the country decide that they don't want democracy anymore? What happens if they decide that it's a rotten system, an inappropriate system, and they want something more authoritarian or more local or more libertarian? Um, does that make half of America bad, un-American? It's odd that we have this discourse now amongst progressives suggesting that, the, that many people in the Republican Party are un-American, it's as if the whole thing's been turned on its head. These are very good questions. I think what, the, what probably puts um, democracy at the center of this conversation is because, you know, in, in, in the limited way that they did it, that's that's was the set of ideals that the country was founded on. And so was it, John? Are you really serious on that? Did you, well, you, you heard the caveat, right? In the limited way that they did it. But isn't that the lie that the, the noble, I mean, maybe a, a noble lie, but it's certainly a lie that the country's lived off for the last 250 years? Uh, I maybe, I wouldn't maybe frame it quite as cynically. I think if you think about the content of what Constitution tried to do, and you think about it in the context of the day, and the um, other kinds of systems of government that existed at that time, you know, there was clearly a goal to right, put popular sovereignty more at the center of the work of politics by having voters elect these representatives, and so on. What where the limitation was clearly was in the view of who was a legitimate voter, um, in addition to all of the other um, ways in which the Constitution failed to address, the, you know, slavery and then therefore the country's long history of, you know, racial discrimination against Black Americans and so on. We all know. That. We all knew indigenous. That. We all knew that we. Yeah, absolutely. We know that there. These are not insignificant, John. Of course. So what I'm saying is, the country has been living fitfully, right, into these democratic ideals over time, 
has not, of course, achieved them by any means of perfection. But I think the reason why we think that it's worth to strive for those ideals is because to replace them with authoritarianism is uh, to replace them with a system that runs roughshod over the welfare of, of citizens to an even greater extent than our imperfect democracy today might do. And so that's why we're not anxious, I think, if you look at um, the views of many who have written about this, you know, to, to turn our president into a figure like Viktor Orban in Hungary or elsewhere, um, one whose goal is to sort of rig the system and to ensure his you know, ongoing political authority and power. Um, so I don't, I mean, I think that you can, you can have a world in which the meaning in the, of democracy is contested or the country's record of living up to its ideals is, is debated and appropriately criticized. Um, and still not ask to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater and live under, you know, a 10 pot despot. Um, I, I feel like we can, we can, again, make some reasonable distinctions here between alternative ways of, of organizing our politics, acknowledging our own limitations, but at the same time seeking to maintain some of the ideals that have tried to animate this country in its history to date. Do you think there's also a need, John, for a rethink amongst progressives? I had, uh, I've done so many shows on this. I had Daryl West on the show from Brookings. Uh, we had an interesting conversation, at least it was interesting for me, about um, whether the educated elites, guys like West, are paranoid and that whether they should rethink their position. Do you wear two hats i mean on the one hand you're the editor or very much involved in the washington post monkey cage which is a you know, it's a great paper but it's a progressive paper on the other hand you claim to be a political scientist the notion of politics being a science being a peculiar american conceit do you think there's a need for progressives to also rethink their relationship with america and its so-called democracy in what way well, to come to terms with the fact that you're you're perhaps too powerful, that, uh, that you control the science and all the arguments, and that you you can you can write a book like this that claims to be political science, and on the other hand, you're also and I, and I don't mean this in any critical way because I'm I'm in your political camp. You're also yourself partisan. Well. I mean, I think a couple of responses to that. Um, I mean, this is applicable to the monkey cage, which you mentioned, and perhaps also to, you know, my personal approach to it. Um, and you also work with uh, Democracy Fund, which I, I mean, is a great organization. I'm not sure, sure. if that's necessarily sure. so partisan. I, I, can only, I can only speak to, for myself. You know, I, I, I'm not going to try to speak for my colleagues in the discipline or for the discipline writ large. Um, I think our goal in writing the books that we've written and, and my goal in helping to start the monkey cage was to, to bring the analytical um, perspective of political scientists, the findings and the evidence that we produce. Um, our argument in these election books um, was to the, is to the best of our ability based on the ideas and evidence that we um, feel are supported by the data acknowledging the you know, limitations of any kind of scientific research. Um, and I would say that in, in so doing, like, you know, I, I, I don't know about like maybe the, the, the big question of the sort of orientation of, of progressives to the nation, but I can say that in writing these books, like 
you know, we've been happy to write plenty of things about those elections that haven't been what the sort of party line was uh, among the Democrats, you know, including such things as, well, we, we Obama won in 2012 because, you know, he ran the most amazing presidential campaign. Um, we were more qualified as to what we thought the impact of his campaign itself was. And the same thing in 2016, when we weren't particularly sympathetic to the idea that Russian interference had, you know, tipped the election to Donald Trump. Um, so that, that to me is, a, you know, for in the in the our projects, which are, you know, again, just three books about three different presidential elections. You know, that's the that's the, the stance that we try to take. I think my my main concern, therefore, is I don't know, not so much that it's. Um, uh, reflects some sort of partisanship per se. My main concern is that, like, is it getting the story right? Like, are we telling the story? That, like, is it, is the data good? Is the are the conclusions we draw from it fair? Um, when I lose sleep at night about the, doing this kind of research, it's mainly because I I want to make sure it's it's reasonably rigorous and sound. Um, so that's my way of thinking about the the issues that you raise. I don't pretend that like um, I'm some you know. Um, neutral objective uh, robot, you know, who can completely divorce his thinking from his own political ideas, you know, 24 hours a day. But nevertheless, all you can strive to do as, as someone who aspires to some degree of uh, scientific rigor is to, to do your best to use the tools of science to tell a story. And that's what we've tried to do in these books, at least. Let's end, John, on how to strengthen American democracy. One of the more depressing shows we did recently was with a, a young political scientist, Jacob Grumbach. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Sure. But he suggests that all the cleavages of uh, federal po politics at the federal level are now existing at the local level. And that seemed particularly worrying. And then, of course, there are all the structural problems with American democracy, particularly gerrymandering. We did a show with Nick Seabrook, another political scientist. What needs to get fixed? I mean, there are so many things, whether it's local politics, gerrymandering, money in politics. Where would you begin? Um, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we need to, to do a few things to prevent the machinations that we saw in the days leading up to January 6th. And so um, effort in the Senate to fix the Electoral Count Act. I mean, we, we need to take some of those kinds of shenanigans mm -hmm out of the picture. I mean, that would be a very small and I think yeah. modest step um, to prevent some of the worst case scenarios. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who believes that gerrymandering is at the root of all ills, um, but I think the evidence suggests that having some degree of independent redistricting processes is helpful uh, in terms of creating um, districts that are less biased in favor of either political party, whoever does the, the mapping, um, and potentially they're in somewhat more competitive as a consequence of that. So I'm not saying that again, like I don't think that's gonna change our politics or make it, you know, um, create uh, so consensus and end all polarization or anything like that. But I think there's a case to be made that some um, more implementation of commissions could be a useful thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually a fairly, I'm a fairly, um, I'm, a, I'm someone who looks at reforms um, of different kinds, and I, I tend to see the trade-offs much more than I see a, a clear path um, to a better politics, a better democracy. I'm, I'm more concerned at times to try to figure out like, what are we gaining and then what are we losing by having different ways of doing things. Um, so I, I tend to think of the, the, the benefits of any of these changes would be 
with the exception of like trying to prevent like uh, a low probability but catastrophic outcome, like actually being able to steal an election um, using kind of electoral college shenanigans. Um, I think of mostly what we're trying to do is to, to change things at the at the margins, um, which is why I'm happy to try something like independent redistricting commissions, but cognizant that, that that's not necessarily going to produce a politics that is um, fuels like dramatically different than the politics that we have today. Well, the new book is out, The Bitter End, The 2020 Presidential Campaign and the Challenge to American Democracy, uh, an important new book. I don't know what you're going to call your book about the 2024 election, John. Uh, I've, tried, I've, com I've committed not to, have, not to writing one, um, maybe for my own mental health, if nothing else. Good. Well, we need... Uh, whether it's you or somebody else, we certainly need these kinds of books. What else are you reading in addition uh, to some of the books we talked yeah, about today? I, what are the good books that make sense of this in an interesting way that don't just confirm what everyone already thinks in the first place? I will say a couple of things that I, I thought of, um, and both of these were helpful for us when we were thinking about the 2020 election. Um, uh, there is a book. I'm going to hold it up. Um, hold it up. You probably have heard that this has been gotten a nice bit of press about um, called Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces. No, I don't know that. It sounds it, interesting. Who, who wrote it? Uh, it's a book by um, Ishmael White and Cheryl Laird. It's about the what it is about um, black politics that keeps black voters voting for Democratic candidates. Oh, even. yeah. We did a we did a show yesterday, actually, um, with I'll just tell you. Um, who, who wrote a book about the same thing with uh, Brandy Collins Dexter, a book about uh, calling into question the, uh, the almost the religious way in which uh, African-Americans vote for the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think to me it was a, had a really interesting account of uh, sort of the social psychology at work. And I think, and you know, we, we, we finished the 2020 election um, by thinking about why was Trump able to do a little bit better among black Americans and especially Latinos than he did in 2016. And so I think you know, spending more time studying the people that have studied black politics, Latino politics, and really trying to understand more about those groups will help us understand a little bit more about um, their historic tie to the Democratic Party, but also why for some that might have weakened a little bit, particularly among Latinos. Um, another book that I don't have in front of me um, is a book by a political scientist named Daniel Gillian at the University of Pennsylvania. It's called The Loud Minority. Um, and it's a study of protests and the way both in which protests, of course, are inevitably politicized in, a, in our polarized politics, but it's also an account of how um, actually racial justice protests, what their electoral impact is. And it, he finds often actually that it is a positive net impact um, for Democrats and for, you know, for the causes and candidates that the protesters themselves are likely to support. And actually that's what we found about the George Floyd protests in 2020, if anything, and I don't think we have like solid causal evidence of this, but if anything, they helped Biden perhaps a little bit, perhaps. And so again, I think that understanding both um, the electoral impact of protests, but also understanding like just more generally, why do protests in the contemporary era, why are they unable to sort of maintain kind of a stance that is like a righteous stance that like transcends politics or partisanship? Why do they inevitably kind of get sucked into the mall of partisan politics. And Daniel Gillian's book about that, I thought was uh, written before George Floyd, but I think was had a lot of prescient ideas and evidence that I think 
the Floyd protests um, illustrate as well.